And that process of that incremental development gets permanently recorded in teeth. So when your listeners brush their teeth tonight or floss their teeth, they're just going to think so differently about teeth. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Curious Drawn Podcast, where we provide you with scientifically informed parenting. I'm your host, Cindy Huffington. I am a mom of three, and I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience. Today, we are talking about early life stress and mental health. Before we begin, I want to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at The Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Drawn Podcast. I would also like to invite you to follow us on Instagram. We are at 75,000 followers now, an amazing audience of pediatric clinicians and researchers and parents. You can follow us at Curious underscore Neuron. If you are enjoying the Curious Neuron podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you do, send me an email at info at and I will send you uh, our tantrum guide for free. Today's guest is Dr. Erin Dunn. She's an epidemiologist who studies how often and why people develop or fail to develop mental health problems like depression. Her research group, the Dunn Lab, studies both social and biological factors that shape risk for depression, including the role of genetics and early life exposure to adversity. She is particularly interested in understanding the role of these factors as they relate to depression among women children, and adolescents. The long-term goal of her work is to identify strategies to prevent depression and promote brain health across the lifespan. I know you all have lots of questions for her because you filled out that question box um, this week on Instagram. Dr. Dunn, thank you for joining me today on the Curious Neuron Podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I was like a child the day before Christmas (laughs) yesterday. I find this topic so fascinating and you know, to give our audience perhaps also um, a little heads up, I we might be talking about some topics that are uncomfortable or triggering to some. We are talking about early childhood stress and adversities. How did you end up in this field of work? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. Well, so it started, you know, it really started early on for me as early on as high school. So, So I thought that I wanted to either be a teacher or a psychologist. And so I spent a lot of time working with kids and I was just around kids a lot. And so, you know, one of the earliest experiences I remember having kind of in a professional setting was I volunteered in a kindergarten classroom in my local, my town's local elementary school. And I remember meeting twins who were adopted from Romania. Um, and, you know, learning more about their struggles and seeing their struggles. And, and, you know, that was sort of one of the earliest glimpses I had, I think, into adversity, but I didn't really, I guess, you know, think about my career path as doing work specifically around the consequences of childhood adversity until I got to Boston, where I went to Northeastern Mm. for my undergrad. And, So that was for the first time in a big city. I had grown up in the suburbs in Connecticut and was working in, you know, inner city classrooms. And there were so many things that just stood out to me about that time. You know, I was working in Head Start classrooms 
and and elementary school settings and you know you you got to see both the effects of adversity directly on kids you know so i had preschool kids who were being raised by their grandparents because you know mom had been involved in substance use or something along those lines and dad was out of the mm-hmm. picture and then the grandparent dies you know and you'd see this i mean just a tremendous amount of adversity at such an early age. And then you would see how a lot of these things were likely intergenerational. So you talk with parents and they would, you know, tell you about their own childhood and you'd start to, you know, piece this together. And for me, I, you know, I was doing this work and I was also working directly with kids um, who are a little bit older. I was working at a, at a residential program for kids who had serious emotional, um, you know, mental health related issues. And for, I, I, I mean, I, I don't remember the actual number, but it seemed like, you know, 90% of those kids had some kind of early life adversity. And so it just really stood out to me as one of the biggest ways you could think about trying to prevent mental health problems from happening was if, you know, we could do something to prevent experiences of early life adversity. And lo and behold, what we've determined and what we know from large research studies is that's actually true, that you know about 30% of the population level burden of, of any kind of psychiatric disorder and maybe even burden of you know, physical health problems is caused by early life adversity. I wonder if or, or what our society could be doing more to, to help prevent this. I, you know, uh, it depends on the day you ask me about this and how, <laughs> like how optimistic I feel. So there's, you know, there's a part mm. of me that feels optimism because I think that especially with the pandemic, that there's just mm. such a greater awareness of stress and, you know, or different kinds of stressful challenges that people experience. I think maybe our language has changed around, you know, some of that in a way that's really helpful. And I was just talking with someone actually the other day and she was telling me about her daughter who's in, in therapy and how her daughter was talking to her friends about being in therapy and, you know, and they, they're eight-year-olds and they're talking very openly about this and that's wonderful. I mean, it's, you know, really breaking down a lot of the stigma around mental health that prevents people from getting treatment. Then there's another part of me that also, you know, wonders about the ways in which the world will change for good, you know, as a result of the pandemic. And, you know, you can't help but feel a little bit brokenhearted, I think is maybe a good word to use as a scientist when you see so much um, struggle around things that are really, you know, pretty basic, like wearing a mask, for example, it's a pretty basic mm-hmm. intervention. They're widely available. They're inexpensive. Sure. They're, you know, they're an inconvenience to wear, but you know, it's not, it's not a pill that you have to take every day. It's not an injection. It's not, you know, something that costs a lot. And so, you know, part of me mm-hmm. feels just like brokenhearted about the, particularly in the U.S., just our response to, to ba- you know, basic mandates. So then, you know, when you extrapolate up to think about, you know, something that's way more complicated, like childhood adversity, something that happens, you know, to kids and the fact that our, that our society just really deeply protects that family bubble in good ways and bad, you know, I think, I think those are some real, 
challenges that we have to overcome. That said, I think there are, you know, good things that that did happen during the pandemic, you know, so I think the uh, resources that went to people through the stimulus funding is great because, you know, when parents are less stressed, there's less opportunity for kids to potentially experience, you know, abuse and neglect and things of that sort. And then the other thing too, is we also know that parents are just such big buffers of what happens to their kids. So, you know, when we talk about early life stress, um, it's important to differentiate that there's different kinds of stress, you know, so there's stressors that are just part of growing up and that are, you know, typical. Um, but then there's other things that I think of more as, you know, being adversities, things that really shouldn't happen to kids as they're developing. But for both of those kinds of experiences, what we know from the research is that having a supportive and loving caregiver you know, whether that's the biological parent or biological family member or some other person really makes the difference in terms of how that child, you know, biologically processes processes that response, or I should say how that child biologically uh, experiences that, that stressor uh, or that adversity. And so, you know, anything that we as a society can do to help parents is also good for helping uh, children to mitigate the effects of those early life experiences. Hmm. That's fascinating. You know, some people or some parents were asking how to protect their children if something is happening within their environment. And from the parents that I've spoken with, I know that some are in very difficult situations within their home, whether it's within the marriage, um, you know, uh, physical abuse or emotional abuse happening in some homes. And they know their child is around. There are usually two questions that they ask me. One, if the child is only two weeks old, can this really have an impact on them? Are they too young? And I think you had a study that addressed the age. Um, and the second one is, how do I um, help my child if something already happened in front of them or they witnessed something or there was a traumatic event? Can I help them or what can I do to help them? So can we maybe address like the first part of their question with age? Does age matter? So age we think does matter, but we also, the data are really early on and being able to determine, you know, which specific ages might matter more. Sometimes people think that, you know, just because uh, a child is really young, like an infant, oh, they'll forget it. You know, they mm -hmm. won't, they won't, they don't even know what's going on, but I don't think that that's actually true. And I think there are, you know, are studies that suggest that, you know, even infants can be, um, can be stressed. Mm -hmm. I think the, the thing to, to note is that there is work being done in this area where, you know, researchers like me and others are trying to figure out, you know, what, what time periods in life might be more impactful in terms of, you know, shaping risk for mental health problems in the long term. I think the challenge is that, um, is that it depends on where you're looking. So for example, one of the things we've been studying are these uh, chemical modifications that happen to kids' uh, DNA. So mm -hmm. they're called epigenetic signatures. And so these are chemical tags that are added to the genome that don't change how don't change your genes, but change how your genes function and how your genes are expressed. And so from that work, you know, what we've been finding is that it's generally in the first five years of life where we see more of those epigenetic changes happening to kids who've been exposed to adversity. 
And it seems from that work that it's really more about the period from three to five. That preschool period seems to be where we're seeing the most the most signal in terms of those epigenetic differences. But it could be that for other things, you know, like inflammation or other markers that 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 we haven't looked at that earlier might matter more. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first thing is, you know, there really isn't a clear cut answer on this in terms of when timing matters, other than to say that that, you know, infants do still carry with them you know, the imprints of, of adversities that are either happening directly to them or, Mm. you know, might be affecting their, uh, their caregivers. And then I'm forgetting the second, second question. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, first I'll, I'll just follow up on that, but I think what we don't realize sometimes as parents is the child doesn't need to understand the words that are being said. Um, right. There's a physio, a physiological response. Like you said, the stress response. Um, I think there were studies or there was a study, um, around, infants who were in the environment where parents were arguing, you know, very aggressively and loudly and their heart rate increases. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is, is that why, yeah, is that why there is uh, an impact even if the child is very young? Yeah, it's, it's, that's, so that could be the biological manifestation of that stress, you know, an increased heart rate mm-hmm. or increased in cortisol, which is one of the stress hormones that's commonly studied. Mm-hmm. So, so in some ways, that is expected and good, right? So when kids are experiencing something that is out of their normal, so you know when when parents are yelling um, or something along those lines, it's actually good that the body responds mm-hmm. in that way because that's what the body is supposed to do. It, it goes into that fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Where things become challenging is when that fight or flight response is prolonged and it's happening chronically, you know, and it's happening repeatedly. That's where, or it's happening without the support of at least one loving, you know, caregiver mm-hmm. um, to, who can act as a buffer of that stress for the child. And that falls into the second question, right? So you you spoke about that buffer. Is that the attachment? And if a parent uh, is trying to protect a child who's in this type of environment, as long as they would, I'm assuming, just keep them close and and keep building on that attachment? Would that help protect the child? I think there's, you know, this is another area where as researchers, we've spent so much time focusing on what what are the risks, Mm -hmm. but not as much focused on things that offer protection. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is another area where particularly in the aftermath of the the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been, you know, a lot more area of of interest. You know, and I think generally people talk about how kids are resilient. And it's true that, you know, when you talk about early life stress and mental health conditions, you know, most kids grow up to be fine. Um, it's it's really more the norm that they'll be okay. It's in about a third that might develop some kind of mental health or you know physical health related issue. So that's kind of the first thing to to acknowledge. And then I think in terms of protection, there's you know a lot of different things that could could be determining the health outcomes of that child. And I think really most important among them is that attachment that parents or at least that one loving caregiver has with their child. Um, and, you know, so that they could really act as that, as that buffer. Um, and in that way, I think it's really important for parents to try to identify opportunities to take care of themselves. You know, it's like that expression, I forget, how does the, I haven't flown in two years, so I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah. 
But like, the you mask. know, the, yeah, the idea that like you put on, you put on your mask mm-hmm. first to take care of yourself and then you take care of the other people mm-hmm. around you. Um, and I think that's, you know, true here. And so I, I think that's another place where parents who might be, you know, a little bit concerned could think about trying to find ways that they can take you know, better care of themselves in terms of their own mental health and their own physical health, because they'll, you know, be able to have more, you know, bandwidth mm-hmm. and attention and and everything else to give to that child. I think that's been the hardest part, um, you know, for parents these past two years is right at the onset of the pandemic, parents were seeing how stressed they were and overwhelmed and having to balance everything and and not having any clear boundaries anymore of when does work begin, when does work end, childcare, um, house chores, everything was kind of put together in the same, you know, um, environment. Um, and, and this is where it became difficult. And then we started reading a lot about or we as in social media, we started seeing a lot of mindfulness and self care. But they were defining it in a way that wasn't really accurate. (laughs) You know, when it comes to that self-care, we don't just mean going out to the spa (laughs) and taking a moment away. There's a lot more to self-care. And sometimes that's addressing these childhood adversities. I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, one of the things that has was so complicated about the pandemic is that is that it added into our lives a series of additional stressors mm-hmm. on top of stressors that you typically, you know, that are typically part of of just, you know, being an adult and, and raising a family. Um, you know, so your work-related stress could have gotten worse. You know, there were divorces and, mm-hmm. and new marriages, and you know, even some of those like happy stressors of a, a new baby and all of that. And then you mix in, you know, the pandemic, which then makes things, you know, even more um, complicated. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, for parents, what we realized is we did need to address part of our childhood and any of these because they are impacting how we regulate our emotions. They are impacting how we get triggered or how we help our child with their own emotions, right? And that all came out with the pandemic. That's exactly right. And, you know, I think it's interesting in the sense that that you're right, that that self-care doesn't mean that you need to spend an entire day, you know, at the spa or, you know, it, it's, it's about trying to find, I think, those moments within every single day where you can, where maybe at a minimum, it's that you show up late for your next meeting by five minutes because you just took five minutes to deeply breathe and try to reset yourself, you know, and trying to do that maybe or before a meal or before you go to bed. Like, I think, I think that we probably underestimate the impact of these small micro adjustments, you know, and we think that like, we've got to do things that are really big, but our bodies, I think are pretty remarkable in the sense that they just bend towards wanting to heal. They bend towards wanting to help us heal and help mm-hmm. us, you know, process what's going on in our environment. And so, you know, I, for me, I find, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I find meditation incredibly hard. <laughs> like for me, it's like, you know, my brain is going 60 miles an hour. And then it's like, you're going down to, you know, <laughs> driving a car at, at like five miles an hour. <laughs> so for me, sitting for 30 minutes to meditate is, is really challenging 
But it's like anything else, you know, the more you do it and the more you practice, the more you get better with it. But I find at least for myself that five minutes of a meditation, I can get into it easier. It doesn't feel like I have to squeeze it in as much. I can, you know, more organically find that time throughout the course of my day. Um, and my, I can stay focused in that. And that reset really does help when, you know, I've come from a challenging meeting or I've been running around and, and I just need a second to sort of, uh, come down, so to speak. So, you know, and I think physical activity is another big one that we talk about as a protective factor. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, trying to get out and walk or exercise and, you know, here too, there are, I think things that we learned from the pandemic where, you know, many of us are are stuck on zoom um, and you don't have to be confined necessarily to your desk for zoom. You know, you can have zoom on zoom on your phone and you can walk around your house or walk around your neighborhood while you're taking some of these meetings. Mm -hmm. And then another part for that is an important protective factor Mm -hmm. too. That's also emerged from some research that I've been involved with is social support. So really, you know, having at least one person that you can connect with and that you can spend time with and that can hear more about your concerns and you can, you know, share, share those moments of life with, um, those are things that are really important to help adults in particular. Um, I think not just buffer Mm -hmm. stressors and kids, but also protect themselves from developing depression. Mm-hmm. It is comforting to to feel seen and heard from someone. And sometimes within our home, we might not be getting that. So finding that one person that we can connect with. I love that. That's great advice because it does feel good. You know, when it comes to some parents, they can struggle also with understanding their needs. And this is why I love covering this this topic, because sometimes they piece things together and realize, oh, I'm I um, get stressed more easily or very anxious because of something that happened in my past. Can you talk a little bit? You just touched on it right now, but what what are the impacts of these early childhood adversities? So what we know from the research literature is that childhood adversities have impacts in multiple different areas. And it's it's unlikely that being exposed to adversity you know directly impacts your risk for a mental health condition or a physical health condition mm-hmm. but rather it probably is that adversity is disrupting you know these processes or these we call them like biological mechanisms these things that are on that pathway of sorts So, you know, I I talked earlier about the epigenetic modification. So it could be that, that the imprints of adversity are left behind in our bodies in the form of these, you know, chemical changes to our DNA that change how our genes are expressed. It could also be in the form of inflammation and that, you know, just systemically our bodies are, are really inflamed. Um, you know, some of my work is now also focused on teeth, on, you know, children's baby teeth as these biological records, you know, that, that show the imprints of that early life adversity. And so, you know, so there are a number of different areas of where, you know, things where adversity can go awry kind of on a biological level. And then there's also, you know, just how you, how you cope um, and the kinds of coping strategies that you turn to and whether you use, you know, active coping versus passive coping strategies, whether you, you know, how you regulate your emotions, for example, 
Um, there's also impacts on cognition, meaning like how you think. And, you know, so we've shown, for example, that mm. sometimes people who experience early life adversity are more attuned to certain, you know, environmental stimuli in a way that that enables them to, to adapt more to that environment. So, you know, we found, for example, that some kids who've experienced early life adversity actually have better memory in some ways than, than people who were unexposed, which makes sense because maybe there were experiences in, in someone's early life that, you know, they needed to really know and be able to determine whether the expression on their parents' face, you know, was reflecting a particular type of, um, of emotion, for example, you know, to know whether mm-hmm. to, to, to hide or to, you know, to not, not be near dad if dad was going to be abusive. And so, you know, so I think the, mm-hmm. I think related to that part of what we're appreciating more and more as researchers is that, you know, childhood adversity is, is really also about adaptation. It's about having been given needing to deal with circumstances and experiences that kids shouldn't have to grow up experiencing, but figuring out and and adapting, you know, in good ways and bad to that adversity. Mm. Early life adversity is really about changing a number of different domains of how people function. And so that's where we've talked as researchers about plasticity. Mm-hmm. Adversity might entail people making changes that allow them to adapt in the short term, but might have longer term and negative consequences for adaptation in the longer term. Mm -hmm. And I think that addresses some other questions that we received where parents who knew they had experienced either a traumatic life event or an adversity when they were younger and are now taking medication for depression and have a, have a child. And they noticed that they struggle with being present and, and helping their child when they're having a tantrum or crying. And their question was, is it too late? Am I going to pass this on? I'm struggling with connecting with my child and, you know, I don't know what to do. So I'm assuming that with what you just said, as long as the work begins and, you know, they do get some help, there is a way to work on yourself. I think that's exactly right. It is never mm-hmm. too late to make change. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously earlier is better, but later still matters too. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to, to parents who are wondering about that, what I would say to them is, to you know, try to wherever they can implement changes that they think might be helpful, and don't feel discouraged that they might not have done it as early on as as they had hoped. Mm-hmm. But but to also remember that kids are remarkably resilient. You know, we say this as a society, but it's really true, and you know, it bears out in our research data. And so I think I think that you know, trying to do interventions early on and connect. Um, you know, connect kids with services that might be able to help them, I think is really critical. But the other part too, is I think also just, mm-hmm. you know, kudos to the parents who recognize that there is a challenge and yes. that there might be a problem because that's a really big first step that I think is, yeah. 
you know, often goes un, um, unacknowledged. You know, I'm thinking about research data that shows that on average, it takes 10 years, 10 years for people to get mental health treatment who have a mental health issue. Like wow. that's an enormous amount of time that people spend suffering unnecessarily. Yeah. And so imagine if we can shorten that. And so in my mind, you know, nine years is better than 10, eight years is better mm-hmm. than nine and, you know, so on and so forth. Do those studies look at both men and women? I'm just curious if there's a difference between the genders. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. I'm just curious because I, I try to work with fathers and try to bring them into this, you know, community. And a lot of them have childhood adversities that they've never even spoken about, that they've never, I guess they struggle with being honest about it. And I'm wondering if given that, that there are a lot more, that it would take them much longer, right? Because they first have to become aware of it and and then work with societal you know, expectations of men too, of masculinity and have those struggles. So I was just wondering if there was that additional struggle for men. I think it certainly could be, but here's the thing, being exposed to adversity, Mm. sadly in, you know, in the U.S. and in other parts of the, um, you know, globally is more the norm rather than the exception. Mm. So, you know, the latest data I think suggests that about, um, you know, 90, 80 to 90% of kids will experience at least one type of childhood adversity, whether that's divorce or, you know, having a parent with a mental health issue or, you know, something else. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's way more common than people wow. might, might feel. And I think this is, you know, an interesting place where, where I see stigma decreasing around mental health and that people are talking way more about their own mental health challenges, they're talking way more about their use of services to try to help mm. address those mental health challenges. But I don't think there has been as much attention necessarily around adverse childhood experiences. And I think I think yeah. there's a lot of embarrassment and shame mm-hmm. and worry that people have in disclosing that. And I think that's another conversation that we need to have mm. as a society to talk more about these experiences because they are, they're very common. And mm. So people who experience them are not alone. I had no idea they were this common. That's a really high number. It is a really high number. Yeah. You know, we, we've been saying childhood adversity, and I just realized that perhaps there are some parents who don't know exactly what that means and, and what falls under that. And if it's the same as childhood, childhood trauma, can you define both? Sure. So I think that this language is is important to get right because I don't think, at least from a research perspective, that all of these terms actually mean the same thing. So so when I say stress, I think about that feeling that we've all experienced when you know the demands of our life exceed our personal and social responses to mobilize. It's that you know your heart rate is up and you're sweating and you're um, you know that you're starting to feel overwhelmed. Stressors are those external stimuli or those you know life events that trigger that that um, that response. When I think about traumas, I think about traumas as being events that are really, um, they're serious adversities or serious, um, you know, very terrifying events. They're shocking. They're really deeply emotionally overwhelming, um, where people could be concerned about, you know, worrying about whether they might die um, or being seriously injured or or threatened in some way. Um, I think of childhood adversity as 
as a more global term that can encompass both stressors and traumas, but it's, mm-hmm. it's really a, you know, a category of experiences that, that threaten children's physical and psychological well-being, and that they, they deviate from what you would expect for, you know, a typical life experience for, for a child growing up in, in its, you know, societal context. Thank you. I think that paints a better picture now because yeah, I think even when we talk about childhood trauma, we don't really define it. I think we just throw everything sometimes into that category and we have to make sure that we understand that there are differences in in research. No, that's true. And then the other thing I think, you know, that's been an interesting kind of trend in in society is that we also throw these around a little bit too loosely sometimes too, you know, so I think- Mm -hmm you know, people talk about things like, oh, that was so traumatic. And you like, no, 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 that was not traumatic. That was stressful, you know? And so I, so I think, I think language does matter in these kinds of areas because I think it, you know, it, it, it can marginalize people to feel less than, or to feel more alone, but it can also broaden, you know, people's understanding of something in, 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 and you know, help them seek out something that they might not have otherwise done. Um, so I posted about our conversation this week, and the main question was, why teeth? <laughs> so I am a happy and you know scientific alternative to the traditional tooth fairy, if that's um, you know practice that you practice in your home. But you know, really, this bore out of my interest in childhood adversity, which you know, as I shared, is something that I've been interested in for my you know entire professional career but what was always so frustrating is that the way that we measure people's exposure to childhood adversity is really flawed hmm. so as researchers we often do a couple of things one we ask people when they're adults to retrospectively tell us whether they've been exposed to you know early life experiences mm-hmm. and in my case you know we would also often ask when that happened because we're interested in you know those timing effects. And so as you might imagine, you know there that's a pretty problematic strategy for reasons that you know we talked about before too around you know people's memory. They might not remember what happened to them at certain points or you know, they're really painful experiences. They don't want to talk about them. So there's you know mm-hmm. a number of reasons why that retrospective reporting is problematic. So an an alternative is that people, that researchers have asked people prospectively. So you try to collect data from kids as they're growing up. Mm -hmm. So for example, you ask mom or dad or, you know, another caregiver, whether their child was exposed to, uh, to early life adversity, Mm -hmm. but that has problems too, right? So for example, sometimes parents might feel reluctant to talk about, you know, these painful experiences mm-hmm. for not just themselves, but also, you know, if their child was impacted, mm-hmm. um, if they're also the one who is, you know, perpetrating those adversities, mm-hmm. they might be really reluctant to talk about them. Um, and I think, you know, another piece is that for adolescents in particular, there might be things that adolescents have gone through that their parents just don't know about. Mm. So all of these things, you know, just, I think, make it clear to researchers why, why the measurement of, of childhood diversity is really complicated. 
The other thing that we also sometimes do is look at administrative le- records. So for example, you know, try to identify kids who have come to the attention of authorities for child abuse and neglect. Mm-hmm. But we know that that's also problematic because those cases are really just dramatically undercounting the true number of people who've been exposed. So the long story short is that um, probably about six or seven years ago, I was invited to give a talk at um, at Brown University, and uh, so my talk focused on childhood adversity and you know early life stress and um, and its implications for mental health. And I talked about my interest in you know trying to identify these developmental timing differences and. After the talk, I went out for lunch with a colleague and I was sharing with her how frustrated I was about our field's inability to really do a good job of measuring early life stress. And, you know, we're having lunch and and she says, have you ever thought about teeth? (laughs) And at first I thought she was trying to tell me that I might have had like food stock in my teeth (laughs) or something because it just seems that far, just like that, you know, from outer space, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And she said, you know, I remember when I was an undergrad, I took an anthropology course and learning about teeth as these fossil records of our early life experiences. And then she said, you know, you should look into that. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. I had never heard about that before. Mm. So, you know, I basically drove home from that meeting about a hundred miles an hour in my <laughs> the mini Cooper I was driving at the time. <laughs> and I started searching And it was just like, oh my God, there is this incredible wealth of literature in archaeology and anthropology where people are, you know, literally digging up the bones and teeth of people who lived hundreds of years or centuries ago and trying to connect that with, with, you know, their life experiences. Hmm. And then there's some folks in dentistry and in other areas that are looking at, you know, lead and heavy metals and teeth and trying to link that with mental health. But no one was really doing anything that I saw around what we would consider to be childhood adversity. You know, these mm. events that are, that happen to kids now that could impact their, you know, their health. So, so that was basically the day, <laughs> the day the science tooth fairy was born in a way. <laughs> That you know, I just started going down that path and and realized that I could connect these dots in a way that that maybe people hadn't done before. I was so curious about how or how you use the tooth and what you're looking for in a tooth. And I I went on your website and and learned that there are layers and layers on our tooth on the and the enamel, right? And this is what you're going to be looking at. Is it the layers? That's exactly right. So our teeth are mm. absolutely fascinating. So when or your listeners brush their teeth tonight or floss their teeth. They're just going to think so differently about teeth from <laughs> now on, but at any rate, so um, our primary teeth start forming in utero. So starting in about the second trimester of life, and then they continue forming over those first early years of life. And the way that teeth form is it, they follow this very incremental process wherein there are um, deposits of enamel or deposits of dentin, which is the, the tissue underlying enamel that gets laid down to, cr- to create, ultimately create the tooth. Mm-hmm. And that process of that incremental re- development gets permanently recorded in teeth. 
So it's similar to the way that trees develop. So if you were to take a cross section of a tree, so if you, you know, you were to cut a tree in half, essentially, yes, you would notice that there are these different incremental lines and that some of the lines in the tree might be thinner or some might be thicker, some might be darker, some might be lighter. Mm. So those characteristics tell us something about what the environment was like as that tree was forming. So harsher winters or, you know, a lot of rain, things of that sort. So my hypothesis is that our baby teeth do the same thing and that they might be able to contain these clues about, you know, different kinds of adversities that might've happened as kids were developing in the form of those incremental growth marks or those uh, stress lines. You know, when I was reading about the tooth, this is exactly what crossed my mind. It, it, this is like a tree. And I had no idea. And you're right. I think you, you brush your teeth a little differently that night because you realize my teeth are fascinating. And my daughter actually, I have a, a six-year-old. She lost three teeth <laughs> last week. And I was like, can you can you give me your teeth? <laughs> can I look at them? Amazing. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Um, no, it's totally. And this is one of these things that you know, when you think about it, it's like, could it be that these things that are completely hidden in plain sight, you know, like we, um, you ideally brush them twice a day Mm -hmm. after they fall out, you, you know, sometimes you throw them away, um, or you store them and, and sometimes you store them and then you later throw them away because you, (laughs) I think sometimes parents feel guilty about throwing them away. So they keep them, but then but then when they move homes, you know, 10 years later, they eventually throw them away. So, um, but no, it's completely fascinating. So we've, you know, we've started a number of studies where we're trying to, to mine the data that exists in teeth and see if, you know, they might record information about these early life experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, you know, it looks like they might. So we published a paper back in November in a journal called JAMA Network Open, where we showed that experiences of maternal depression and anxiety, you know, mental health related symptoms that parents experience around the time of their child's birth correlated with a particular growth mark in teeth called the neonatal line, which Mm -hmm. is this line. So thinking about it, you know, like a tree ring, it's this line that marks and and Mm -hmm. differentiates the prenatal time period from the postnatal time period. But what was also fascinating was that we also saw correlations with social support. So moms who felt more social support had children who had thinner neonatal lines compared to wider neonatal lines, which is what we saw for depression. So, you know, I think that suggests Mm -hmm. that maybe teeth can tell us about both risk and protection potentially. You know, and that reinforces also that I think here in Canada, we do place a lot of importance on prenatal period, right? And taking care of the mom and the baby. But the postpartum period, there's not a lot of support. And a lot of moms that I speak with, you know, don't have that community or that tribe right after. And they don't have, um, some of them don't even realize that they're in the middle of postpartum depression or anxiety and don't have help. Um, I really think that as a society, we need to um, offer a lot more support to moms and dads, actually. Oh, I think I think that's right because fathers can experience postpartum depression too. Yeah, you know, it's not just mm-hmm. it's not just biological phenomenon, but it's you know, um, yeah. your world's turned upside down when you have you know you bring a new mm-hmm. baby home. So, I think the good news is that more there's more awareness about this. Yeah, and there's more physicians um, that are starting to screen for 
um, you know, for postnatal postpartum depression. Mm. But I do think that there is, you know, a long way to go there, mm-hmm. but, but I'm optimistic that we'll make some good inroads on that in the years to come. Um, I, before we end our conversation, I have two more questions. The, the first is I'm thinking about how hard it must have been to collect <laughs> all these teeth. And I know that you have a study that looks at saliva, right? Because you're looking at the telomere length. Is it much harder? Is this work much more difficult for you to do? Yeah. So it is really hard to collect teeth. And there's a number of reasons for that. So, and this is partly what I think makes teeth so fascinating and so different compared to other kinds of um, other kinds of biomarkers. So, mm. you know, you have kind of you've, you know, 20 shots, so to speak, because you've got 20 primary teeth, but, but you've got a a specific time in which they're, they're developing. So, and you want to catch them before parents actually throw them out. So that's one, (laughs) one thing. Um, The other thing is that, you know, parents think differently about their teeth than they do other biospecimens. So I know some moms have saved their children's hair, for example, or after that yes. first haircut. Um, I think, you know, uh, teeth fall into this other category where there's also definitely been marketing to try to save, you know, save all of your children's baby teeth and put them in this this box you can buy on Amazon or, you know, what have you, um, or these, you know, pillowcases you can use. And so I think, I think there's just something that, that makes teeth different. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they're more, they're more treasured in a way they're more, they mark a developmental milestone, Mm -hmm. you know, this transition of where you were, you know, baby isn't as much of a baby anymore and they're starting to, you know, get bigger. Um, so I think there's, I think the fat, all of these things make teeth different from other biospecimens. And what, and all of that to say is that as researchers, we've really not studied them that much. So we don't really understand what circumstances make people more or less likely to be, you know, interested in donating them. Mm -hmm. So that's an area of research that we're actually starting to pursue. We're hoping to pursue in the next um, bit. We have a a grant that we've submitted related to this, you know, to try to learn more about what people think, what parents think about, you know, donating their teeth to science. Yeah. I'd love to find out. <laughs> That's I'm curious as well. How can parents who um, who are interested now in the research that you're doing, how can they um, support the work that you're doing and how can they contact you? Thank you. That's so nice. I think there's a number of things that parents could do if they're interested in in supporting this research. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I think is, you know, to continue to check out our website. So teethforscience.com. That's where we post information about studies that we're recruiting from now. Um, I also have a Facebook and Twitter site that we use to announce information about our studies. So parents who are interested can follow those to learn more. Um, And it would be great, you know, for for anyone who's interested in potentially participating in one of our research studies um, moving forward to, you know, follow one of those sites. Mm -hmm. If parents are interested in donating their children's teeth to science now, we would love to get them. So we use them oftentimes as teeth that help us develop new research methods or that help us train students to work with them. So, mm-hmm. so if anyone is interested in, you know, sending in their children's teeth to us, it would be great to, 
to have folks contact me by email. Perfect. I will add all of those links to the show notes of this episode. So everybody who's listening from iTunes or Spotify can click on that link and or any of these links and they'll be directed to you. Awesome. Before we end, I, I always like to um, hear from researchers to see with all the years of research that you've done, what are some of the key takeaways that are the most important for parents? I think one of the key takeaways for parents to know from from the work that's been done in my group and others is I think about the importance of of timing and that you know although we don't have it perfectly nailed down mm. that that there might be these you know developmental timing differences in mm. in children's lives where they might be more or less you know sensitive to different kinds of life experiences so that's that's maybe one. I think a second thing is that people can overestimate the importance of some some things. So yeah. So while on the so I said earlier that you know childhood adversity is you know can explain at a population level you know upwards of about forty percent of the variability in risk for mental health. That doesn't mean that your child who experiences adversity is likely to go on to develop a mental health problem. And what we've been learning over the years, particularly from work in genetics, is that there is not a single gene. There's not even a couple of genes. It's literally hundreds of genes that influence people's risk for depression and other kinds of mental health conditions. Yes. And so, you know, I think... I think that's where we have to remember that these are complex phenomenon. Depression is a really complicated phenomenon mm. that is not, it's not distilled down into just, you know, a, a common set of risk factors or protective factors mm. that explain it. But it's it's really about multiple things that accumulate over the course of you know someone's lifespan that that shape risk or protection from from a mental health condition. So I think in that way, hopefully it gives parents some feeling of hope that resilience is more often the norm and that experiencing even a really tough childhood adversity does not necessarily mean that a mental health problem is, is expected in the future. I I love that you ended it this way. Thank you so much for joining me during this podcast episode. And thank you to everyone for tuning in. Um, I will speak to you next week. Thank you, Dr. Dunn. And I hope that we get to talk again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. 